0: It's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting.
1: Welcome to the Synergy Connection Show, where we can connect the dots between the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual selves. Since March of this year, we've all been living in a COVID-19 world where the physical health of everyone has been front and center, so to speak. So if you go to my website, which is www.SynergyConnectionRadio.com, you're gonna see a link for Boomers Forever Young, which is one of the sponsors of the show. And this company produces world-class nutritional products to help all of us stay healthy. I think one of their most important products is their Gladiator Barley, which assist in reducing inflammation throughout our bodies. And since inflammation is actually the source of all disease, finding a way to lower it is gonna give you and everyone else a much better chance to ward off any illness, which includes COVID-19. So just click on their banner um, on the website and you can sign up for a free newsletter. It's a health newsletter. I helped to write it and so I think you'll find it interesting. And then if you decide to order something, if you use my name, Lucy, L-U-C-Y in the promo code, you'll get $5 off of your order. So remember that Gladiator Barley is gluten-free. You're gonna find that out when you uh, read a little bit more about it. And it is gluten-free and it's going to help you perform like a gladiator every single day and every single night. So I have as a returning guest, one of my dear friends, Trey Malakote. And Trey holds his master's degree in counseling psychology. He works today as a personal coach. Um, He's a writer and he's a speaker on multiple topics. And I personally believe that Trey's largest strength that he has is his ability to give people the tools that they need to step out of their destructive narrative. And these are narratives that a lot of people have been living most of their lives and so they can then step into a life of joy Um, his website is called upsize your soul so if you go to www.upsizeyoursoul.com you're going to find a lot of information that trey has there for helping people again step out of that false narrative into a life of joy so welcome back trey i love having you on the show and our topic today i think is going to be pretty interesting Uh, We're going to talk about learning to embrace your gift in life, or maybe you have multiple gifts in life.
0: Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on your show again, Lucy. It's always such a pleasure. I am thrilled, in fact, to talk about what we're talking about today, how to learn to embrace your gifts and how to really step in them and step into your gift. And so I guess the first place that I'd like to start is just by posing a question, Where do our gifts come from? What is your perspective on that?
1: Oh, I, you know, I think we are knowledgeable, let's say, about certain gifts that we have very early on in life. And for me, I knew that I was a healer by the time I was eight years old. Mm. And I was working with um, animals. We had 23 cats because we lived out in the country. And uh, we had nine dogs. And so the cats were always bringing their gifts, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. to our porch. And uh, sometimes the animal was still alive. Most of the time it wasn't. But occasionally there would be a wounded, um, you know, small bunny or um, a bird of some sort. And um, my dad, gave me little cages, and I was able to begin to heal a lot of these animals. So I think that you sort of begin to know your gifts as a child. And that's why some people know that they want to be a teacher, other people know they want to be a doctor, or Mm -hmm. they know Mm -hmm. they want to be a writer early on, but then they may move away from that gift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this show is all about is maybe rediscovering what that gift was. If you did move away from it.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So can I just ask you to buckle your seatbelt because I've got all sorts of interesting thoughts here.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: All right. So here, you know, in my work really, uh, in the world of coaching, things have shifted a little bit and what I'm, what I'm discovering now is that about 90% of all the ways that people function in the world are really subconscious. They, they do things and have repeated patterns and belief systems and self-defeating behaviors. And You've seen that as a therapist. I've seen that as a therapist. And so I went on a journey to figure out why do people keep doing the same stuff and never seem to get better? Because that's a fundamental question we need to answer. And in that process, what I've realized is that we come into the world, this is my own opinion, we come into the world with a set of gifts that are divinely appointed, if you will. Uh, and, I, you know, whatever your faith orientation, spiritual bent is, this is just the way I see it. But I believe that we're perfect expressions of creation and something brilliant uh, when we show up, when we arrive on this planet. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? We are intersected. By our parents. We step into a world, and I know that sounds kind of funny, you know, a little innocent baby intersecting with their parents. But have you ever thought about this that your parents teach you everything about how to live and function in the world, including how to stand in your gifts or how to not even recognize them? Now, of all the people that I've worked with, I can't count on one hand how many people have said, my parents helped me discover my gifts. I just stumbled onto them. Well, I believe that we stumble onto our gifts because our gifts come. We, we go through a series of wound experiences. We have challenges and failures and difficulties. And all these patterns that are running subconsciously in our lives are are playing out. And eventually, if we struggle enough, we'll rediscover our gifts. Let me give you some examples. For instance, if you were a child and you grew up in a home where you were unseen, right? You just maybe were the fifth or sixth child. Your parents were busy. You just were not seen for who you are and for your own unique expression. My hunch is you have a gift of seeing, a gift of recognizing, a gift of acknowledgement, a gift of cutting through the clutter and being able to see boldly i'll give you another example what if you grew up in a a family experience where you felt shame and i believe that many of us can say yes i was shamed by my by my mother shamed by my father shamed by this experience shamed for this belief and if that's the story of your life the experiences of your life guess what you have a divine gift of honor let me give you another example and then I'll show you how this works in my mind. If you have been victimized or rendered powerless in your childhood, in your experience throughout the stages of your life, you're, you realize somewhere along the way that you either play the victim for the rest of your life as, as, a, as an actor, you play that role or you realize that you have a sacred gift of advocacy and empowerment. Mm-hmm. Advocacy and empowerment. Let me give you a fourth example. If you grew up in a world where you were under constant criticism, constant judgment, constant perfection, constant uh, there's always something better and different that you need to be doing. So many of us that grow up in families where we're driven to be something more and something better. That's a narrative of imperfection. And if you grow up with a narrative of imperfection, what your sacred gift is, is grace. You know how to stand in the perfect while things seem imperfect. So what I'm beginning to realize is that all the struggles in our lives, all the challenges, all the repeated patterns are simply the wounds that reveal to us what our sacred gifts truly are. Now, how we got there in the beginning I don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's reincarnation. Maybe we chose our families. Maybe uh, we just were blasted upon the earth and we happen to have a number of wounding experiences. Nevertheless, the thing that I've learned is that your gifts, and this is a pivotal thing, your gifts come out of your wounds. Your gifts come out of your wounds. So I've identified 12 different wounds that people experience and I see this repeatedly in every one of the clients I work with, the wound of being unseen. And I wonder how many people in your audience can, can purely say I have experienced not being seen the wound of insignificance, the wound of shame, the wound of judgment and criticism, the wound of violation, the wound of victimization, the wound of powerlessness, the wound of invalidation, the wound of imperfection, instability, turmoil, and depression. And here's the beauty. If you've been unseen, you know how to see. If you've been uh, living a life of insignificance, you know how to help people feel significant. If you've experienced shame, you understand honor differently. If you've been judged and criticized, you understand acceptance profoundly, deeply, on a level that's Cellular, if you've been violated, you understand restoration. If you have been victimized, you understand advocacy. If you've been rendered powerless, you understand how to empower and encourage others. If you've been invalidated, you know how to validate, how to hold in honor. If you've been experiencing a wound of imperfection, you know how to extend grace to others. Instability. You know how to care and provide stability. Turmoil, you know how to create peace. And if you've lived in a life of oppression on some level, you learn how to create beauty. Hmm. Really, so, really interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah.
1: Very much so, because uh, you're right. I think everybody that ever has come in to see me, and, and it sounds like you, has been a victim of one or more of those situations, and then they continue to sometimes live that lifestyle uh, rather than recognizing that they can have the positive outcome from it.
0: Absolutely. You know, my clients, and I'm sure yours for the most part as well, live into the stories that they've been taught. We live into our wounds. Now, here's the unfortunate thing. Our wounds come from people who have been wounded. And I'm not pointing a finger at blame, of blame at our parents or our grandparents, but there's a lineage to our wounding. Think about, for instance, the insecure young woman who has body image issues. I can guarantee you her mother had the same challenge and her grandmother probably faced the same challenge. And we don't know how far back in the lineage that will go, right? Right. People living in oppression, the same thing. And so the thing that I'm really intrigued by is when you, if you think about your wounds and your gifts as really being um, two different classes that you go to metaphorically at to university, you go to the wounding class and you go to the gifts class, right? And you might not like your professor in the wounding class, but I can guarantee you, you're going to appreciate the professor in your gifts class right all learning is driving us to a place and i firmly contend that our journey on this thing we call the planet this journey of life is to reconcile ourselves to who we are as divinely inspired brilliant expressive creatures and then to step fully into our gifts and so here's the word of encouragement if someone were to look back at their lives and they say, which one of these wounding experiences have I had? Was I violated? Was I rendered powerless? Did I experience shame? Instead of staying in that story, what if we flipped the script and we said, you know, if you experience shame, you have a profound awareness of how to honor people. Now stand in honor. Create your life that way.
1: Uh, i 'm going to ask the question, which i'm sure listeners are asking at this point how what are the steps maybe for a person who has experienced one of these wounds to then step into you know their gift because it's not going to be just a matter of oh, I see my gift, I can step there but,
0: absolutely
1: yeah, but maybe you know what work are they going to have to do in order to maybe begin to experience the gift and not the negative side of what they have been experiencing
0: yeah okay uh great question fantastic question first of all the first thing a person has to do is accept responsibility for their lives we're indoctrinated to believe that we don't have to be responsible for our thoughts and our emotions and our relationships and you know we're actually By the the establishment, the medical and the mental health establishment, we're taught to actually be irresponsible. When was the last time a therapist looked at you and said, I've heard that same story out of your mouth for the last six months, and I'm not going to continue to allow you to indulge it. So let's flip the story. You don't hear a therapist say that.
1: You know, I do.
0: Well, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do.
1: <laughs> I do because um, I want them to see that they are absolutely living that same narrative, as you say, over and over and over again. And, you know, it's like a light switch, you know, turn yeah. to switch on and look at what you're doing. And then right. decide if you want to continue to do it.
0: That's right. So I think the first step is to do a thorough evaluation and look at the areas of your life that you are, not taking full responsibility for if you're blaming your feelings your experiences your emotions your actions on anyone or anything else except yourself guess what you're not owning yourself emotionally you're not owning and taking responsibility for who you are and for the reality you're creating that's the first step the second step is to go back and I what I call it I call it mining the past Most people run to their past because they're trying to figure out some answer, and what I encourage is to mine it, to go back and look at every story of oppression, every experience you've had, every defeating uh, challenge, every painful memory, every story of limitation, what your parents told you, what your grandparents told you, all the rules you have about the world, literally analyzing your life. From that point to now and saying what is this that I have been through and if you were to do a timeline for instance of all the major changes losses disappointments and uh, struggles what you begin to see is on that timeline you'd see certain repeated patterns and those repeated patterns will show you the themes of your gifts. now mm. the second piece of that is after you've done this thorough mining You go in and you say, okay, which of those experiences, not which of them, but how have those experiences influenced the decisions I've made, the relationships I've been in, the work I've done, how I see myself, what has been the collateral damage of those experiences? And that's the painful part because you have to begin to realize that, hey, maybe I was par- partially complicit in that experience. Or, you know, uh, just to just to stand in a place where you say, wow, okay, I now see the damage. I know the damage has had a repeated pattern in my life, and now am I willing to change the pattern? And then the third step that one needs to go through is embracing the idea that ha- they have the complete power to change that story to change that story of victimhood for instance or that story of oppression or that story of limitation or that story of insignificance and then the fourth step is to say now I'm going to change the story
1: now I'm I'm going
0: to step into it
1: yeah I would think that when they actually reach that step of now I'm going to change it the sensation of being in power of their life would Mm -hmm. be just astonishing to them
0: it is i think it's more than just astonishing i think it's terrifying because most (laughs) people don't want to acknowledge that they actually have ultimate responsibility and the ability to create their exact reality and that comes down to one very foundational fact the only two things that we can control Are our perception and our reaction.
1: That's true. And, you know, again, from where you're sitting and where I have sat for many, many years as a therapist, um, I can't begin to tell you the number of professional people, including professional athletes that I've worked with, who blamed, you know, something or someone in their past for why they are the way they are today. Right. Rather than taking responsibility and saying, you know, I realize now maybe that um, I had a choice and the choice I made has led me here, but I can make other choices.
0: That's exactly right. You know, in my work, what I'm seeing is that um, there are certain personas that people take on to hide their wounds, and that's the mm-hmm. first step to begin mm-hmm. to look at the persona. For instance, we have the comic we have the caretaker, we have the protector, we have the blame thrower, we have the critical judge. Think about all those personas that you find, time- what we see in our offices every day. Right. And when you look at that expression, you say, what are they trying to hide? What is it that they're trying to cover? And let's get underneath that. And then when you start saying, what was your story of childhood? Because you see, these narratives that we form arrive in our lives before the age of 10. And effectively, I believe that our beliefs subconsciously are fixed before 10 years old.
1: I think so. I think that's very true. I I can't think of a single situation over 30 plus years of being a therapist where that wasn't the case. You know, that it's usually... Um, even a precognitive kind of a situation when they're two and three and four years old, they don't have a lot of strong memories. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them, you know, certain things that maybe happened tell me about your family, tell me about your siblings, tell me about this or that you know, you'll begin to discover, like, oh, you know, maybe your mother or your father was an alcoholic or a drug addict, or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, financial instability in the family and they were constantly moving or homeless or. You know, there's so many scenarios, and they began to pick up on those emotions and made that part of their life.
0: So exactly right. They live into it. So, let me give you an example of a man that, that's absolutely fascinating. He's in, and here's the thing the younger you are, the more, uh, and this, I don't mean for this to sound ageist. But I have found typically with the folks that I work with, the folks in their 20s and 30s, if I say, here's your story, here's what you need to do to change it, do you see the impact, they can change very, very quickly. Mm
1: -hmm. But as
0: we age, we become more solid in our beliefs and those structures that keep us safe in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I have a man that I'm working with right now. He's 73 years old, is in a pit of despair and discouragement and depression, and he just can't seem to shake it. And he's had himself glued together for an entire lifetime. But in the mining, in the discovery process, we realized that he was a preacher's kid that grew up with a story of profound unworthiness, that he had a belief system that said his God was going to judge him be wrathful, and that he had to perform in every aspect of his life. He was driven by a family system where all eyes were on him for perfection at all times, and he created a performance narrative and a perfectionist narrative rooted in an underlying story of unworthiness. I cannot please God. I cannot please my father. And so what he did in his life was become the controller and the caretaker, which are two personas. The controller made him very successful as an executive of a large company. Uh, the controller made him capable of amassing lots of money and the perfector and performer made him always look slick and good and put together. But the <laughs> moment that everything began to crumble was when a a family member estranged from him and he could not get his head around the idea of how he could have performed as a perfect father and his son would still not want to be with him. Well, that comes down to those core stories that he holds. And so in conversations with him, I've said, What do you need to do to get out of this narrative that you're wounded, that you're broken, that you're flawed, that you're unworthy, that you're insignificant, and that you need to be in control? What if that's just an illusion? Well, I can't make, I can't do, I can't do my life without being in control. But you see, his need for control is a byproduct of his lack of control, his lack of personal agency as a young child. And so for him to heal, he's going to have to go back and realize that the stories he's been taught were that, stories he's been taught. Mm -hmm. And he will have to create outside of that. I've sat with him and I've said, how would you create a life of joy, peace, and purpose? What does that look like for you? Well, I have to be taking care of someone. I have to be building this. I have to be, no, 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 no. That's where joy, peace, and purpose reside. Joy, peace, and purpose reside in being present in the moment, not in what you used to be or what you used to do or not in what you think you're supposed to be. It's about being right here, right now. Now he's just one example. Can you think in your own world of examples of people who are so fixed in certain beliefs and when you dissect those beliefs back, they came from a place to keep them safe?
1: Oh, I, yeah, I can probably think of a number of them. Um, for a lot of females, you know, especially, but males fall into this category too, um, you know, feeling that you have to be the caregiver as a female you know, we grow up with this idea, if we had moms that were caregivers, that when you get married, um, then you become the caregiver. You, you do whatever your spouse maybe needs, whether it's laundry or fixing dinners or taking care of children or taking care of the home. But there's roles that you kind of fall into. And uh, I think with COVID-19, it has created a lot of difficulties for families because everybody's home. That's you know, right. A lot of people lost their jobs. They, um, you know, are working from home. The children are homeschooling from home. In many cases, uh, some of the schools are partially populated, but a lot of kids are still, you know, doing home learning. And, okay. um, you know, so having one person maybe take on more responsibilities than they can and not being able to ask for the other partner to literally join um, the collaboration, if you will. You know, That's let's right. say it's a family project because the rules have changed mm-hmm. and being afraid to ask for that. A lot of females right. have difficulty asking. And as far as that goes, I think a lot of males have difficulty uh-huh. asking for help too because they're supposed to be the provider the protector, and maybe that's not falling into place right now either.
0: That's exactly right. So you dialed it in just then when you said, look at the the ideas about how people, the roles that people think they're supposed to play. Well, Mm -hmm. I always drill that back and I say, where do those roles come from? Well, there's social indoctrination, familial indoctrination, educational indoctrination, uh, social norming. There are a number of factors that are influencing the way that we believe. So let me drill this caregiver one back a little bit, just for sake of example. If you look at the behavior of caregiving, the wound most likely is that that person was well cared for. Their care needs were not met. Their need for intimacy, their need for touch, their need for to be seen, their need to feel significant. There was some deficit that said... Uh, that limited their ability to feel fully cared for. And so as the outgrowth of that, they became a caregiver. I'll drill it down a bit deeper. My father used to laugh and he would say, you know, I know that you've really messed your kids up if they're a preacher, a teacher, or a counselor. But (laughs) when you get right down to it, all of those preacher, teacher, and counselor are roles of caregiving in some way. Mm -hmm. And so what if that caregiver is actually just chasing love, chasing validity, chasing acceptance, and chasing worthiness. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the litmus test. If someone is a caregiver and they argue with me on this idea that they're chasing love, here's the assignment. Don't be a caregiver for two weeks and watch how it makes you feel. And if you feel depressed and inadequate and insignificant and that you're not making a difference in the world, guess what, you're chasing love. You're chasing acceptance.
1: Right, and you know, that's probably, I mean, if you look at the demographics, it's probably 50% of the population fall into caregiving because we have teachers, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have so many people that are in working in that capacity. And then you have the ones that are the recipients. And so, you know, those individuals are like out there going, yes, you owe me.
0: That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I know I'm speaking generalizations, but I do know that uh, the behaviors we demonstrate are mitigating a wound we've experienced. Let me use me as an example. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was completely unseen as a child, and I was not, I was a square peg in a round hole. In fact, I don't ever remember really fitting in the world, and that's okay. As a kid, though, I was this quirky, expressive, interesting little being until I went to first grade, and I began the social norming about how different I was, and I happened to also grow up in a family where there were high expectations about performance and perfection, and putting forth the right image, and being that perfect Mm son. And through my process, I pursued that perfection, performance, and I had a great successful career as an executive. I pursued multiple different disciplines. I've been on this search my entire life of trying to find my footing. But what I realized was that now, after I've healed all of that, drills down to one thing and my entire work is based on one concept how can I because I know discouragement the wound of discouragement really well and so as a result of that how can I live in my sacred gift of encouragement every mm-hmm. single day so Sometimes leaning so
1: about doing that
0: You know, for me, it's about really understanding that I, I mean, I feel like that's the divine gift and I hold it sacredly. You know, when I engage with people, I have a a, a motto that I want to leave them better than I found them. And that doesn't mean that it's all roses. And I mean, there are times when, you know, sometimes leaving someone better is challenging a belief system that they have. Uh, Not all roses and, and peaches and cream, but I think for me, it's owning that sense of sacredness to that gift. And frankly, I have to own it because it helps me make sense of all of the crap that I had to endure. Mm -hmm. So I could look at the junk in my life and I could be a victim of that junk, or I can look at it and say, wow, look at all those things that I experienced and how they taught me by looking on the outside, looking in, I now can see people, excuse me, who are on the outside. By being discouraged and diminished and humiliated and embarrassed, I can stand in a place of restoration for others. By being someone who was never seen, I can see well. And so what I would invite people to do is to think about those things that caused them greatest suffering and then flip them, flip the script instead Mm -hmm. of staying in those stories. Because you and I both know, Lucy, the reason that people suffer in this world today is that they stay in a story, they stay in a belief.
1: Right, exactly. Um, I was thinking about the number of people that I've known over the years who became nurses and doctors um, and dentists, uh, a couple of dentists that I worked with a long time ago. And it was because of the bad experiences that they had maybe in that field you know somebody who wasn't listening to their pain or wasn't making them feel better and so they kind of came away with i want to make a difference someday with a child or with an adult you know and and so that's what they did which is really pretty cool um but i don't think they ever did see it quite the way you're explaining it where you know they became what they became And that is their gift. And by embracing their gift, you know, they're able to let go of their past, their past hurts and any kind of um, limitations that they've been placing on themselves over and over again.
0: That's right. Here's what makes it difficult because, you know, I can make a generalization like all caregivers are chasing love. And what I, I need to clarify is that all caregivers are attempting to mitigate some story. For instance, many, many doctors go into medicine because they want to make a difference in the world, but also because they have had driving parents that have held them to a performance standard and they're seeking love because they're trying to please their parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That, it, so it's not just, it's not as simple as it sounds. You have to get deeper and deeper into it. People go into the ministry because they have. Uh, been disillusioned. They lived in a world where there was no stability of understanding greater uh, existential things about the world. And so sometimes people go into the ministry, which is a caregiving activity, but they do it in the pursuit of understanding because they didn't have understanding. So what I'm proposing is that you look at what you are, what you gravitate toward, and you simply say to yourself, why am I doing this? What motivates me to do this? Going back to me as an example, because I was unseen. I was an arrogant, snot-nosed little brat growing up until about 40. I was, <laughs> right? Until I finally realized that I didn't have to keep performing. hmm I didn't have to be the one with the biggest car and the biggest houses and the most influence and the greatest power. I could be acceptable without all of that. And there was so the pivotal was your moment.
1: moment. Yeah, what was, your, what was your aha moment when you kind of went, oh, I don't have to do that anymore?
0: Well, for me, it was all about pleasing my father who looked at me with great disregard. And I think many, many people, many men at least, have fathers who we never make muster. You know, our fathers really mess with us a lot of time. And I think women, same thing, you know, uh, but the women's mother re- mother relationship another no story. But I'll never forget I was playing golf with my father and uh I had just gotten a huge promotion. At that point I was making probably five times the amount of money that he had ever made in any job in his entire career. And as we stepped onto the golf course, I was talking about uh, I did this and I'm teaching at this university and I've just gotten this promotion. And he looked at me and he said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I really don't give a blank. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, time out. That was that moment of awareness where I've been chasing his love, chasing his acceptance for so many years. And when he finally said, I don't care,
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I said to myself, why am I chasing something that is an illusion? Why am I chasing his existence, his validation? Why am I chasing him in a way that that is so unhealthy, you know? And when you really think about it, most of us are chasing something that our parents wanted from us. Let me give you another example. I'm working with a young lady right now who is on her second master's degree. She's got a full-fledged professional job as a writer. She is uh, a brilliant horsewoman, uh, kind, beautiful, brilliant soul. But she grew up in a family where the standard was very high and very, very specifically oriented toward one certain faith tradition. And so we were talking about her latest graduate degree, and she's about to graduate in May or, I don't know, fairly soon, May. And she said, you know, I never told my mother that I was going for the second master's degree. I said, why'd you never tell your mother? I mean, how do you pull that off? And uh, she said, I never told her because if I did, I would have to justify why I was doing it and, and who I am now. And then it would create a standard. You have to keep doing this, and how are you going to use that degree, and what are you going to do with it? And she said, so I just chose to step out of my mother's story. Hmm. We're always tied to something that was foundational when we were a child. Right,
1: right. Right? What a blessing to be able to learn this when you still have... Years ahead that you can enjoy life. You know you can right. put that joy and love into your life rather than constantly trying to measure up.
0: Absolutely. You know I have a just for sake of example, if that's okay with you, sure. I have another client who grew up in a, as he refers to it, a traditional, uh, controlling mother kind of home. His dad. Did well professionally. They lived in an, a fairly affluent area. Um, but he came out as a gay man in his 30s or 20s, sometime. And when he came out, he was completely ostracized. Now, of course, that's reconciled itself to some degree, but he has spent a lifetime of plastic surgery, hair implants, dieting, gym exercise. Uh, he's got four master's degrees. He's, wow! <laughs> yes. And I sat with him one day and I said, why are you trying so hard? And, and he, said, what? <laughs> he said, said, well, "Why? I don't know. What, what do you mean trying so hard? I said, your whole life has been a pursuit toward something, a perfectionist pursuit. And what it tells me is that you've never been satisfied with who you are. And when I said that to him, he looked at me and he said, how do you know that? I said, let me take it a step further. I think that your self-esteem is so far in the pit that you've never been able to look at yourself with positive regard. He said, I never have because I was never taught. That's the mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. That's the journey. Right? Right, right. And so how you shake you that off.
1: To, yeah, you have to have somebody... Like yourself, you know that is maybe working with somebody to show them, um, you know that you know the journey that they've been on does not have to be their permanent destination.
0: Exactly right. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point, Lucy, because we are indoctrinated. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. This is kind of funny. When you were a kid, did you think there was some master record about your behavior? You know, your parents would say. Uh, You better perform. That's going on your report card. You better do well in your job. It's going in your file, right? We have this illusion that there's some master record that follows us about all our behaviors. At least that's what I thought, right? You you
1: know, I I think I was just such a um, rebellious, maybe a child from the get-go. Right. uh, Because I don't know whether I ever told you this or not, but a uh, couple people know but when I was about five years old so you know I, very young still and we right. lived in a small town that was very safe and we uh-huh. you could not do this today but I would get upset with something that my mom had done you know periodically and I had a little suitcase and I would go put my doll in the suitcase and probably a book and I'm not sure what else and I uh-huh. would announce that I was leaving And my mom would say, well, you know, kind of like right when you get work. (laughs) That type of comment. And she'd say, well, I'll miss you. um, But, you know, have a good life. And I would walk out the door. And I would make um, the circuit. It would probably take me the better part of an hour or more. But I Uh would make the circuit around our block. I knew everybody. And I would go knock on doors and say, hi, I'm just here to visit. And then when (laughs) I would finally get all the way around the block, I would come back and I'd say, well, I'm home now. And mom would go, oh, it's so nice to see you again. And that would be the end. (laughs) I love it. And so I think uh, for me, I never, ever really looked at um, what somebody else was saying as far as, you know, keeping a tally of good days, bad days, good deeds, Mm -hmm. not so good deeds. Um, I just kind of went out there and did, you know, what I felt like was the right thing to do
0: yeah i think you're the exception i think most people think that there's some master record that's (laughs) keeping track of every misgiving every poor decision every failure every mistake and
1: what santa claus has right
0: yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah so we have this whole story that says there's somebody watching whether or not we're good or bad we Mm -hmm. have a list of things in our own minds, every person I know can tell you the things they've done that are good or bad, right, mm-hmm. or wrong, you know, mm-hmm. we're indoctrinated to duality to that polar- the polarity of black or white thinking. And mm-hmm. what that does is that puts us in what I call a fixed reality. Most people believe that reality is just this collective thing and that what you're going through and what I'm going through are the exact same experiences. And, you know, you take this COVID experience, for instance, and if we have this fixed reality, it's all terrible, it's all scary, it's all difficult, it's all. but as we're seeing in the media, that fixed reality is not the case. People create the reality they choose. they create a reality that gives them a sense of safety and so if someone wants to break out of their limiting stories the first step they have to take is to say I don't live in a fixed reality I am not who I was just five minutes ago I'm not who I was in 1985 or 2000 or 2010 I am in a constant state of evolution and Really, do you know, we as human beings are the only species that denies our own evolution. We think we're stuck. We're not stuck. We simply don't realize how to create. So the first thing is to say, I am not living in a fixed reality, and I am responsible for creating it real time. And then the second step is to say, how do I create? And the most profound, biggest, powerful question that a person can ask, is how do I want my life to look and feel? And then to take steps and actions to create that. We are the creators of the reality we choose. And if you look at what's going on in the political world right now, there are people that are trying to create peace and there are people trying to create hate and division. We create, we lean into what we create. So if you're struggling with anxiety and depression and fear, Guess what, you're feeding it. And so how can you flip that and say, I'm going to create peace, stability, and certainty in my little world. And if that's just in a four foot square around you, then create it right there.
1: Right, I, one of the things that I keep seeing, um, you know, with social media, but also with certain individuals, is this need to you know, take some sort of action and like mm-hmm. you said, the only person that you can actually control are your thoughts and your actions. You can't right. do it with it, with anybody else. Nope. Um, and I, I wanted to um, point out one thing that I thought was just interesting about something you said a, a few seconds ago. You know, animals, if they're caught in a trap
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, the, the limitations are obviously there. A great many of them will chew off their own foot or their leg or something like that in order to escape the trap. Um, they might go ahead and live. Most of them, I think, do. Right. But can you imagine? I mean, here an animal is looking at a situation that obviously has a lot of limitations and they're saying, OK, this is how I get out of this. And yet people are not able to do that same thing. That it's we not know that they're
0: not able, they're not willing.
1: Well, I think they think they can't though. You know, they don't understand First, that they have options. And so they feel like, okay, this is the best that I can do. And I'm just stuck. And we <laughs> never are stuck. We, we always have options. We might not see what the option is immediately, but it's always there.
0: That's right. Yeah. Well, that goes back to that idea of do you live in a fixed reality or a dynamic reality? Exactly. And if you reference, here's the, the litmus test for me. If you reference your past as your identity, then you're, you're rooted in a fixed reality. Exactly.
1: exactly. If you then
0: can say this, is, I, I, who are you, Trey? Well, today I'm a guy talking on a radio show with my dear friend, Lucy, and then I might be working with someone doing some therapy. And then I might become a writer today about 1 PM. And then, at 5 pm i'm becoming a friend and i'm going to hang out and tonight i might sit around and laugh and become a comic (laughs) it's about giving yourself the freedom and the latitude to say i'm going to ebb and flow into the different states that give me joy
1: well you know if people would begin to see themselves a little bit like a river you know we are a fluid person and as we're on this journey if we are the river you know, we're going to see different things as we that's move, right. you know, in a direction of flow. So if we can keep that fluidity about who we are, then we're constantly evolving. We're, we're not stuck in this rigid pattern of this is my box and I have to stay in it, or this is your box and you have to stay in it. No, that's not who we are. You know, we really have the opportunity to become anything at any time in our life. And so your 73-year-old person that you're working with you know he is in a rigid pattern right now because that's who he's always been but the minute that he begins to see that he's evolving and that he can be that river and flow you know it opens up so many gateways for him
0: exactly right you know it's interesting i was talking to him about three days ago and i said how long are you going to continue to allow yourself to live in that prison that you've created (laughs) You're asking, you ask
1: him so, if he liked his orange jumpsuit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But it really is the prison that we create a prison of limitation, a prison of, com- of, of despair, a, a prison of comparison, a prison of insignificance, a prison of shame, a prison of victimhood. And, you know, if people want to really step out of all those stories, they have to say, I am willing to break the ties that binds me. And here's the toughest part. In order to do that, you have to be able to say, I am no longer going to allow that story to define me. Mm-hmm. And that takes enormous courage, right. enormous courage.
1: So I, I have said to several people recently that I, I think that that is the other gift that difficulties do give us. Is we realize that we are survivors, uh-huh, and when you can acknowledge the fact that you have survived many different hardships during your life, it does give you courage it It gives you that ability to look in the mirror and say, "You know what, I made it through this and this and this, and I'll make it through this too. That's
0: exactly right, so we have about three minutes left. Let me tie a bow on this if I may, yeah. okay. Yeah. I feel like right now what people need to hear is, uh, in fact, you know what? I, I, I wrote it down. Excuse me. Here's what I think people need to understand right now in the midst of COVID. They need to understand that the only thing that we can control is perception and reaction. That's it. Number two. Our human beings are wildly adaptive creatures and we have the ability to change the story. Number three, if you're journeying to your past, what you're looking for is a tether point of identity. But guess what? That's gone. Pre-COVID is no longer in existence. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: if you're journeying to your future, you're trying to hang on to something you think you can predict. But the frank truth of the matter is, We must learn how to create our new reality right here, right now. And we've got to step out of those suffering stories that reside in our past. And we must become the observer and live in curiosity about our lives right now. Mm -hmm. Allow our lives to unfold beautifully. To allow ourselves the space and the time to heal, we must get more acquainted with our bodies and learn how to breathe and learn how to calm ourselves down And most importantly, we just have to know when we're falling into that pattern where we say, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I'm scared. I can't handle this. This doesn't make sense. Because what it really comes down to is COVID 19 and all of the other things that we've seen over the last year and a half or two or three or five is an invitation to realize that everything is dynamically changing. And you'll either step on the change train or you'll try to hold with great vengeance to something you thought you knew to be true. And what you thought you knew to be true is gone.
1: Right, that is so, so true. Um, I think anytime anybody holds on to the past, it just simply doesn't work. Um, That's right. You have to be able to step forward into whatever that future is. And how many people have you seen that, you know, they hold on to their friends from the past because that gives them identity and they hold on Mm -hmm. to their memories. And, you know, especially as somebody ages, you know, their conversations maybe at lunch or dinner are all about the past, but Mm -hmm. not about where are you going now with the future. And because they don't think they have a future, you know, they only identify with what they knew.
0: That's exactly right. So it's about becoming the creative observer mm-hmm. and then taking steps every single day. Every morning when I wake up, I say, before I hit the ground, it is a glorious day. Let's create something beautiful. Right. right. If I can't say that. I don't get out of bed.
1: <laughs> well, I think you get out of bed every day. So that's a
0: good thing. <laughs> there are a few days I don't, but, but for the most part. So I believe it's about how you punctuate your life what you're focusing on if you, and it really is falling down one uh, of two options right now. You're either going to pursue fear or you're gonna pursue freedom.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's true. And peace Mm -hmm. and joy or uncertainty and instability and rigidity or hope and opportunity and beauty and grace or criticism and judgment and resentment and blame and anger, which path are you gonna choose?
1: Right. And I, that's such a wonderful question to end on because, you know, it is. It's a path and we have a choice. Uh, remember Robert Frost and he wrote a poem many, many, many years ago about um, walking, or I guess it was uh, he was with a horse and a sleigh and it was in the woods on a snowy day uh-huh. and there was a fork in the road. And so the horse shook its harness as to which way do you want me to go? And then the line in the poem that I remember is, and the choice made all the difference. That's so right. We do have choices. And if people will just kind of keep that in mind, that every single day there are multiple choices that we have. And what choice are you making? You know, does it lead you to joy and happiness or does it lead you someplace else?
0: That's right. One final thought, if we use as our lens to evaluate everything we do, everything we say and how we relate to the world, this is the question, is this decision I'm making, this choice I'm making in my highest and greatest good?
1: Right, right. And if you can't answer it honestly, yes, then maybe make another choice. Or make
0: that one that's not, yes, make it big, but just know where it's (laughs) going to take you. (laughs)
1: Right, right. Uh, Trey, let everybody know where they can find you if they want to do some private consulting, uh, some counseling with you.
0: You bet. Uh, UpsizeYourSoul.com is the perfect place. There are several articles that I've written on all sorts of things from worthiness to estrangement. And uh, I'll look forward to being doing some workshops in the future that I'll keep you posted on but if somebody wants to talk, let's do a 30-minute consult. We'll see if I can be helpful. And if not, then I'll send you on your way. But, Lucy, I just want you to know that I'm incredibly grateful for your friendship, grateful for who you are as the soul and a divine, beautiful gift to the world. And I um, stand in gratitude to you and to who you are as an essence. So thank you for your time today.
1: Well, thank you. I, I love having you in my life. And uh, You're always one of my most special guests. So I really appreciate you as a human being because you're doing wonderful things out there in the world. And, you know, we worked together once upon a time uh, with Your Soul. And and it was really um, a wonderful learning experience on multiple levels.
0: Yeah. So, all right. Blessings, my friend. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Bye Uh, now. Bye.